0: While the earliest forms of written communication date back to around 3000 BC, literacy remained for centuries, something restricted to royalty and closely associated with the exercise of power. Flash forward to 1820 and sadly, only 12% of the world's population knew how to read and write. The good news in 2020, the global literacy rate soared to 87%. The bad news, there are still 60 million children worldwide who are illiterate. While many people have played a part in this global literacy mission, this evening's guest grew up with the mom who dedicated herself to teach elementary school children in the United States how to read and write. Fortunately, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Our guest this evening, in spite of building a busy career and raising his own family, volunteered his time over the years in the service of someone else's literacy. But he has built on his experience to now climb a different mountain. He came to recognize that there is another educational hole waiting to be filled. That only 11 percent of employers nationwide believe that college graduates have the skills they need to succeed on day one of their job. Through his organization Our guest this evening aligns his passion and his purpose to bridge this gap and help students nationwide to develop the tools needed to prosper in this highly changing world. Who is our guest this evening? His name is David Devorkin. He is executive director of Higher Cause, an organization that connects businesses, nonprofits, and students as a way to provide a more meaningful internship experience. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I am Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is David Devork. And David, welcome to the show.
1: Chuck, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: I want to begin this with all of us in our community have a LinkedIn page. And the LinkedIn page says something about us. I am so, I was honored when I read your LinkedIn page, and I went about halfway down, and you talked about an organization and you stated, my mom did this. It is rare that we see in LinkedIn, Facebook, something that is an homage to a parent. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. My, my mom taught uh, third, fourth and fifth graders, um, reading, you know, who are, and, and students who are having trouble reading in those grades. And, um, you know, her being a teacher, she had such a uh, role in my life of, you know, encouraging me. She had immense and so much patience, right, growing up. And, uh, you know, that that rubbed off on me. Um, And and so my mother had a way, you know, in her teacher style of encouraging my dreams and encouraging my entrepreneurial passions. And my father, uh, growing up, actually had a um a way of of teaching me to look at the world and question things you know and have a healthy sense of skepticism and not take things at face value and i think the two of them combined in that you know you know the encouragement of following your dreams entrepreneurially and this other attitude of you know question things look at them you know understand them don't just take it at face value Um, you know i think those two actually combined to influence me in, in questioning the status quo of education in this country and uh, I think I am where I am now in my, my path in, in building a business in the education space because of, the, of those two.
0: Yeah, And before we get to higher cause, I do want to spend time in there because your transformation is a really interesting one. You didn't start in the educational space in spite, yeah. of, in spite of the parental influence. So after graduation from Emory, you came back, you're a New Yorker, um, and you came back to New York after college and set out to do what?
1: So after after college, um, I wound up working for a, a small consulting company. Um, and it was a company that actually served, uh, it was a management consulting company that worked with nonprofits and social entrepreneurs. And social entrepreneurs, for those who are listening, who are not familiar with that term, they're organizations that really use business as a way to solve uh, different problems in society. Whether that be um, in the sphere of the environment, in the sphere of education, in the sphere of the whole range of of societal issues. And, and that was fascinating. And, you know, you had, had, had uh, mentioned, um, you know, about, uh, a you know, talking about my mother, you know, who was a reading teacher. Well, one of the nonprofits I came across during that time, right after college was a, a nonprofit called room to read. And that, um, really, uh, influenced me because John Wood, one of the founders of room to read, uh, was a, um, He was a a rising Microsoft executive, and he took a vacation that he said changed his life. He went to uh, Nepal on vacation and was invited to a local school. And when he went there, he realized that they had no books for the children. And the headmaster of the school said, maybe, you know, John, one day you'll, you'll return and you'll have books for us. And, and John, you know, knowing and researching and seeing that, you know, I think it was 773 million people around the world are illiterate, right. That he, he, you know, he had that feeling when he was at um, Microsoft of, you know, maybe I can do something here. Maybe I can build an organization that, you know, helps uh, literacy helps improve literacy around the world and build schools and libraries in these communities where they don't have access, you know, to this type of education. And so, um, I came across John at an event while I was working at that management consulting company, he gave a speech. And I remember sitting in the audience just in awe because what he did is he left Microsoft to start the organization room to read mm. fast forward about 20 years, and I think they have impacted now, uh, 18 million students around the globe, um, and addressing, um, you know, the, the problem of, uh, students not, not being literate.
0: And while you. We're loving what you're hearing at the time. That was not the time in your life to climb that mountain. So you went to another place. And while it's opportunistic and fortunate we're on a radio show, tell us the career you went to. Then I want to get back to this because it sounds like that particular point, you came back to it.
1: And wound up going to uh, work in the radio industry, as you know.
0: (laughs) Right. Um, How how fortunate.
1: And uh, wound up, um, st- you know, working on uh, as an account executive, you know, designing marketing plans uh, for, um, you know, for businesses to help grow their businesses. And then wound up uh, managing a team of new business sellers uh, for uh, one of the stations. And then uh, wound up um, doing, doing the same thing for four stations in New York City uh, and managing the business development teams uh, there.
0: And if I have the timing right, it was about close to 10 years. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep, 10 so years. Something happened along the way. Now, the speech you heard about Nepal, your mom, and perhaps something beating in your heart. What is happening here that this is where your transformation occurred? What's going on that caused you to maybe take a step back, change the outlook, and the, what's the next mountain? Talk to us what was what you, your head and in your heart. And
1: I've always been passionate about education and always been questioning just the status quo of it. And I felt that there was always this disconnect between the working world and school. And so that was the, there was this feeling of, I wanna start a business that addresses this problem and, and makes a difference in some way and better preparing students for careers that excite them and better prepares them with the skills that they actually need to thrive you know, after college and beyond. And um, I had that feeling, but the truth be told, I was also terrified. I was terrified of stepping out um, after establishing a career working 10 years, um, you know, at the radio stations. And, um, you know, I was afraid. So that, you know, there was this moment and we can get more into that, but there was this moment where I really had to look at, you know, what was, what was, uh, what was I afraid of and really look at and understand and, and, and really see my fears for what they were in order to then choose a new mountain to climb.
0: And what was the fear?
1: The, the fear and, and it, it, you know, it, it's it's rarely just one. You know, I think it, it, it tends to it's be three. Yeah, it tends, to, it tends to be this amorphous, you know, cloud kind of in your head. And, and until you actually write them down on paper, um, you know, they wind up, they were, they were um, contributing to my behaviors without me really knowing, you right. know. And um, I just want to say before I get to, to answering that question about what the actual fears were. There was a, uh, a tool, one of, the, one of the tools that I think had a profound um, impact on, on my life in terms of understanding fears, and I, I recommend it to, to listeners. And I want to thank Tim Ferriss. He's an author, investor, entrepreneur, and, and Tim Ferriss has this tool called Fear Setting. Indeed. And, the, and the idea is, you know, we always talk about goal setting in companies and, you know, where, you know, what, what are the specific goals, but we rarely talk about fears and to put it just in the, in the simplest of terms, you know, if you look at a blank sheet of paper, you know, what Tim Ferriss came up with is he said, if you put, have three columns on that sheet of paper and in the left-hand column, you write down your worst nightmares, you know, plural, worst nightmares. And then if you, in the middle column, write prevent at the top and in the right-hand column, write repair. So the middle column is going to say about preventing, how can I actually prevent this worst nightmare from happening and repair that third column on the right? If it did actually happen, could you get back on your feet? Could you, could you find a way? And I think after doing that specific exercise and writing down my, my, my fears, um, which to answer your question, were a lot about, you know, what are, what, what's my family going to say? What's my, you know, people who, who know I've have have an established career here and and I've been here for 10 years and are they going to think I'm crazy and what, you know, and what if I fail and what if it doesn't work out and what, and all of these questions, you know, just of rocking the boat of, of, of not, uh, of, of changing up something that has become, um, secure to a degree or comfortable, Um, you know, and and start and building and and climbing a new mountain. I think, you know, there's a lot of fear around just change in general. And the main takeaway, though, when I was writing down all those fears, was that they weren't permanent. They my worst case scenarios weren't permanent. They weren't irreversible. Um, I could get back on my feet if I needed to. And a lot of them just, I could prevent them from even happening. And I think, Even if it didn't work out, I knew that the skills and the lessons that I learned along the way were going to be so much more beneficial to me. And and ultimately, it was the fear of regret of not doing it that outweighed the fear of any potential failure.
0: You're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is David And If the fear is, if you go do this and you fail. There, you certainly have a bridge back. But I would imagine you must have thought, if I can get over the fear and answer the question, what do I need to start this thing? Before you name it, before you build other people, talk about what you were formulating. If I do this, I need
1: Yes, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and in uh, entrepreneurship, you know, in studying that, and I would read all these books beforehand. And, you know, my friends would, would say, well, when are you going to start this? What are you going to start this? And, and it was, oh, I'm, I'm working on it. And then it's, I was getting over the fear. Right? But in terms of what I had to build, you know, in, in, in entrepreneurship, they, they there's a term called MVP, minimum viable product. And it's really useful because uh, I think one of the, the common, I guess, mistakes in entrepreneurship is, you know, entrepreneurs tend to build something without talking to people. And they tend to spend all this time, you know, building all these features and building this product without consulting any clients or potential clients and seeing if it's of interest. And so the MVP, the reason minimum is inviolable in product, the reason it's that term is because it's saying what can you create what version of your product what version of your service can you create that's just enough to where you can put it in front of clients and get their feedback right and so i wound up creating our mvp of higher cause at the the time and and partnering with educational institutions and i was just volunteering in the beginning because i just wanted to see volunteering my time in the sense that it wasn't a profitable business it wasn't an, an organization it was just reaching out to certain professors, reaching out to certain teachers, and seeing if we structured a program in this way, you know, designed to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish and giving students more meaningful internship experience and experiential learning, um, could this prove to be useful for them and, and in the classroom and, and help them learn skills that they otherwise wouldn't? And so we, we started testing that and we started seeing uh, the impact on a small scale when I was still um, at uh, the radio stations and uh, I was seeing students use this experience and write about it on their college applications. I was seeing students, you know, some student groups, and, the, and we'll get to it, but the structure of our program is students partner with businesses to serve nonprofits. So right. students in their projects were raising, you know, thousands of dollars for um, organizations like Room to Read, uh, organizations like um, uh, American Cancer Society. And so I saw, you know, their, the light bulbs turn on in their heads about understanding the nonprofit world, understanding the for-profit world, and developing these skills through these projects that, you know, they couldn't just learn passively sitting in a classroom.
0: And the idea from conception to release, did it evolve or was it constant?
1: It evolved. It's still evolving. And it, and it, and you know, the evolving part comes from feedback from clients and from seeing and observing from students and from teachers. And that's why the MVP is so important because it's not, you create a product or create a program and it's done. It's you create it. This is the minimum viable product. Now, then we're going to get feedback. We're going to make it better and include some updates that the, you know, that the the teachers and the schools want for their, uh, their, their students. And we're going to continue just like, uh, you know, Apple's releasing a new phone every every so often. There's always updates to be made. Right. But they don't start with the the product, you know, that's coming out in 2025 and release it today and say we're done. So it's 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 about evolving. And, and that's an important part of the entrepreneurial process.
0: A series of continual adjustments. But what you knew, David, is you couldn't do this on your own. Yes. For our listeners who have their ideas, what is the most unpredictable aspect to many of them are the people that have to come into this circle. How were you thinking about how are you gonna build this organization? What were the skill sets you were looking for?
1: Yeah, and so I, we, what we needed was, you know, part of our mission is, is connecting companies, nonprofits, and schools, so that students are working on projects that um, provide them with more meaningful internship experience so when i say those three sectors of society business nonprofit and schools you know typically they're siloed in, in communities and our work is about connecting those three so that students have you know had an experience that they otherwise wouldn't get but i needed expertise in each of those sectors and that's where we started not just you know having building our internal team but also building a coalition of nonprofit leaders. You know, I reached out to Room to Lead uh, and had many conversations with John Wood and he wound up being a, a huge help in terms of, we Zoomed him in from Hong Kong sometimes to the, in the classrooms, you know, at schools. And so, you know, um, reaching out to nonprofit leaders, um, you know, reaching out to to businesses that were gonna work with the schools, you know, and hire, um, and hire interns. Um, and also at the same time, you know, reaching out and having conversations with principals assistant principals teachers right we, we don't think of schools as a uh you know it, it, it's a complex organization and there's different stakeholders within the schools who um, have different priorities different interests and understanding that ecosystem was really really important to us in terms of building a program that's sustainable in schools how did you fund the
0: organization how did I, how did you fund it?
1: Yeah. So funding, you know, we, there's a, a great course um, by uh, um, an author, again, an author and a uh, marketing expert named Seth Godin. Oh, yeah. And he has a course on uh, bootstrapping. Right. And so the whole idea is, you know, building something with the MVP that comp- that that organizations, you know, are willing to pay for, right? Product market fit in the beginning. So instead of, um, you know, building something that you need all these millions of dollars to fund. What can you create, um, at a lower cost that an organization, you know, would pay for because of the value you're providing. And so we wound up initially, um, funding the program from, um, our programs at schools Mm -hmm. and now in public, private charter schools. And so that's, we've, we've been bootstrapping. We're actually at the phase now where we received our first offer for investment actually last, um, last December, and mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of, you know, that's that's part of the journey in terms of the mountain up, you know, understanding mm-hmm. if we want to um, take that funding or do our values align, you know, with that uh, investor, um, but really for us, we've got to find the right people who believe in the double bottom line, you know, in terms of not financial returns and social returns, mm-hmm. you know, because a, an organization that's working with schools, you know, there's a lot of businesses one could start. but but I you know, I, I really wanted to start a business that affected change in the education system. And so it, it's really important for us to find the right stakeholders, the right, uh, whether that be investors if we choose that route, uh, organizations that align with the changes that we wanna create in the education system.
0: And one of the strategies, particularly as you talk about the ecosystem, is to land and then expand. So what our listeners may not know, you're a New Yorker, did you land, so to speak, in New York? And are you growing this outside? Yes. So we we
1: landed in New York. And, you know, we also um, were, we were focused these past two years on being hyper focused on being small. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a tendency, you know, for entrepreneurs to think big right away. And I think the challenge with thinking big and thinking We're gonna, this is going to be for the world and this is, is that you don't focus on those individual conversations with the, the customer, with the teachers, with the students on the ground floor. With the, and so we've been having those conversations and it's been extremely high touch in the beginning, you know, in order to understand what the school wants, what the and school being principal, teachers, assistant principals, what do the students want from the program? Um, what are the the companies and the nonprofits that are partnering with the schools? What do they want? Um, and really, really honing in and understanding that. So we focus just on New York. We've actually had many. There's been many conversations internally with with my team about saying, you know, do we go to other markets? And and my opinion is um, to focus, you know, small first in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. We're focusing on the tri-state area and really fine tune it there, and then. Then, the, the, then we can really think about thinking big and scaling, you know, across the United States and across the globe.
0: And while even in the United States, geography is different and the dynamics from city to city is different, do you feel that the model that you have tested in New York is scalable to be able to take it to jurisdictions that may be different in the way they think about your proposition?
1: Absolutely. You know, we, we actually, we were just a, um, uh, recognized by the uh, milk and Penn university of Pennsylvania, a graduate school. They have a, um, a business plan competition, uh, for, um, education entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were just announced as a semifinalist. And one of the things that they look for is entrepreneurs committed and that have it, committed to a global, you know, scalable impact right. that have an organization that, um, can scale and so we do have the power to scale um, and we have a platform a, 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 um, a software platform that makes it easy to connect the companies nonprofits and schools around projects and communities right. and that's part of our um, platform for scaling with that said the need to be high touch and really understand the client's needs first needs to happen is, is where we're at now before we scale because we want to make sure we're scaling the right way.
0: Indeed, there's an old expression, many are called and few are chosen. It seems, David, you are chosen for this higher cause. And what I loved about the name of the organization is great double entendre. How do you think about this higher cause? People ask you about it. Why you? Why this? I think
1: we spend so much time in school Um, and we really are not preparing youth to find careers that excite them and to prepare them with the skills that are really going to help them after college, you know, or even after high school, if they realize college isn't for them, we, we don't spend enough time. We spend too much time preparing students for standardized tests and not enough time preparing students in how to lead and that you know just spoke to me and and i feel that it's a it's a a big challenge and a big problem you know and you know schools in this country you know were designed initially to produce a good factory worker you know that was obedient that was compliant and we don't need the same we're, we're, it should be designed for something that is more in the 21st century now and um, that's, that seemed a problem that was worth solving. And so when I think about higher cause and the double entendre, it's, it's really about um, you know, helping students you know, find that sense of purpose and find um, something that, that pulls them in a direction that they are um, proud of and, and that they're prepared to pursue a career that's meaningful to them.
0: And in the time that we have remaining, what do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? And what do you want them to do with this information? So first thing, what do you want them to think about their possibilities? Mm.
1: I want them to think that it, it's possible. It's possible that there's a way to, to, to get to where they want to go. Um, but it really, I would urge them to focus on the feelings Part. Okay, so because, let's switch that.
0: Yeah, what do you want them to feel?
1: Yeah, and and the reason why we want them to focus on the feeling is because we can have this conversation in our heads all day long about how oh, I, I know I can do this, and I think you know this entrepreneurial vision, or, or whether whether it's entrepreneurship or not, maybe it's something at work that they just want to take on a responsibility that they might be frightened of or they might be uncertain of, you know paying attention to the feelings and paying attention and looking at those fears. That is the one thing I want people to take away because that had the biggest uh, impact on my life, you know, in terms of deciding on a new mountain to climb. And I really want people to, to, you know, see write down the fears and actually do that exercise of fear setting or whatever exercise it is for you, but understand and write down what those worst case scenarios are. Because when you write them down, A lot of times they're not as bad as we thought they were and if they are then you know what you've got to do to 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 prepare um and you know a lot of times it's not the answer isn't just you know quitting your job or you know i think some people think oh if i'm just going to quit my job and i'm going to go all in that might not be the right solution but when you actually write down your fears and you know okay what do i need to do you know to prevent that from happening or what what do i need to do to head closer to my dreams you know that Understanding those fears,
0: I think, is critical um, to to succeed in that. And if one wants to find you in Higher Cause, where are you found?
1: Go to uh, uh, highercause.com, H-I-R-E-C-A-U-S-E.com, and uh, you could could follow us on there. Um, And you can also reach out to me on
0: LinkedIn. um, And uh, if you're interested in getting involved with schools, uh, we'd love to talk to you. That's right. And David is David. And last name, if you're listening and you're not writing it down, D-V-O-R-K-I-N, you can find him on LinkedIn. David, it was a pleasure. I wish we had had more time, but uh, thank you so much for sharing your story of transformation. But I particularly enjoyed getting to the fears and having to remove them. This was fun, Chuck. Yeah, for having me much we appreciate to all of our listeners you have listened to A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC I'm Chuck Garcia my guest this evening was David Dvorkin you can always find me on chuckgarcia.com hit the contact tab and send me an email let us know if you have any additional stories we'd love to hear from you but to everyone else and our listeners who continue to come back each week thank you very much for listening to us and for your support we look forward to see you too speaking with you next week. Thank you very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.